This is Discussions on the Firewater Network, where we talk to those crafting the future of the spirits industry. And now, here's your host. This is Zachary Farley. I'm here today with Bridget Fertile of the Noble Experiment in Brooklyn, New York. Hi, Bridget. Thank you so much for being with me today. Hey, Zach. It's great to be here. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you. It's great being here for me, too. So, Bridget, tell me about your distillery. Uh, What does the world need to know about the Noble Experiment? Well, the Noble Experiment was founded in 2012 after um, I left a career on Wall Street with a vision to bring rum distilling back to New York. Wow. So rum was one of America's first spirits and or America's first spirit. And I had this dream to start distilling it in uh, New York City again. Wow. Interesting. Quite a change there of careers, I would think, from Wall Street to uh, running a distillery. (laughs) In very many ways. (laughs) (laughs) So you make rum here. Tell me about that. Um, What kind of rum do you make? So we make a totally unique rum here for a variety of aspects. It's a sugarcane molasses based. Our sugarcane is sourced from Florida and Louisiana, so it's 100% domestic. And it's a grade A or a first boil sugarcane molasses, which typically is used in baking. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's not, so this is a, a pure kind of sugar then that you're using in your rum? Uh, t- explain that to me. Uh, yeah. So, first to just back up for a second, yeah. the um, universal definition for rum making is that it has to come from some form of the sugarcane plant. So, you get two main genres of that. You've got agricultural rums or agricultural style that are made from sugarcane juice, which are less than 10% of all rums made around the world because of the perishability factor of juice. So most rum is made from molasses, which is a byproduct of sugar refining. And basically what happens in the sugar refining process is that that sugar cane is cut down, crushed, the juice is extracted. It's then kind of put in a centrifuge and boiled. So the sugar is extracted from the juice at that point to then be sent to be further refined and ground and bleached and sent to end markets. So what you have from that you know, residual substance from the boiling and pressurization part of the refining is molasses. And because refining has gotten so efficient over time, the kind of most uh, widely available and cheapest form of molasses is a blackstrap molasses. So most of the sugar has been extracted from the juice and uh, what you've got is a substance that's about less than 10% sugar. And so the molasses that we've chosen to use here actually has around 80% sugar in it. Oh, wow. So you basically get the juice to a point where it's shelf stable for six months so we can actually ship it and store it here in New York from down south. It also has an amazing aroma and flavor profile and we it's extremely important for our fermentation philosophy because there's a lot of sugar available for the yeast to eat. Okay. As you say, that must contribute to a very healthy fermentation given that high sugar yeah. content. Uh, yeah. So our whole philosophy here is based on the fact that you use the best ingredients and you use those ingredients in a carefully controlled way to really exhibit what a all natural kind of no sugar, no preservatives added rum can really taste like. Amazing. So 
you know, let's go into a little bit more why you decided to even open up your own distillery. Like you said, you were originally on Wall Street, not a traditional path from Wall Street to distilling. What kind of went into that decision? Yeah, so my academic background is in finance. I have two, an undergraduate and a graduate degree in business and finance. And I went and worked for a hedge fund at, right outside of grad, or after grad school. And I was working on their consumer staples team. So I was part of a group of investors responsible for you know household goods, supermarket stocks, food, beverage around the world. And because I had worked in bars and restaurants and I like to eat and drink, I kind of found this niche in food and beverage and, and most specifically a, a year or two into my tenure there in global alcoholic beverages. So beer, wine, and spirits in the publicly traded markets around the world. And in doing research and investing in those companies, I was obviously observing what was happening on the small scale and where the trends were going in domestic distilling and domestic brewing in the United States. And I was just really excited about that and the people behind these distilleries and how they were trying to do things differently. And the fact that this country has such a rich history of making alcohol. And it's taken almost 100 years since prohibition for the resurgence in the domestic distiller to, you know, really have a comeback. And I basically became enthralled with that. And I, as I said earlier, had this vision to make rum in New York and sort of that dream got louder and louder and I got more and more dissatisfied with what I was doing and thought that if there was a time in my life to take this crazy leap and risk, it was now. And so after about six months of preparing to jump, I jump shipped at the end of 2011. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and um, when you jump ship, you wanted to do it in New York City and here you are kind of in the heart of Brooklyn, uh, very urban, very industrial area. Um, why did you pick this neighborhood or why did you decide to do it here instead of say 30 miles outside of the city where, you know, land is cheap and, and storage is easier? And I am a native New Yorker. Mm -hmm. uh, both sides of my family have been in Brooklyn for multiple generations. Oh. I was born in Brooklyn and raised in Queens. I uh, went to school in Manhattan. So I have a love affair with New York. Okay. So leaving New York, not even an issue. <laughs> That's not, not even an option. And I also some, thought there was something really cool about bringing back manufacturing to the city. And I was drawn to Brooklyn because it has public transportation and it also has manufacturing space that's still available. So there's also sort of a culture in Brooklyn right now that's really supportive of small business and well-made thought out products. And so all of those kind of factors led me to start looking at this borough. I see. And I looked at about 30 or 40 spaces wow. in Brooklyn because as I'm sure you know, uh, you need certain specifications to have a distillery. The floors have to be strong enough. The ceilings have to be high enough. You have to have enough access to electricity or a gas line. And then of course, the city, you have to be in a certain zone. So in order for the Department of Buildings to approve the plans to build a distillery, you have to have a certain zone. And then of course, to make things all that more difficult, the city is gentrifying so rapidly that property owners in most boroughs, but specifically Brooklyn, know that their property is probably going to change to commercial or residential zoning. So they're really kind of unwilling to give you a long-term lease. Mm -hmm. So you check off all the boxes of specifications and then you go down to sit and um, negotiate a lease and the property owner wants to give you a two-year lease. Well, of course. This isn't the kind of equipment you just pick up. Okay, well, <laughs> lease is up. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> move, exactly. Move so, to another space uh, in two years, no problem. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So actually this, I'm on Meadow Street right now in the East Williamsburg Industrial Zone. So the city has said that this 
these few blocks around here cannot legally change from manufacturing zones to residential or commercial. Okay. So these aren't going to become hip lofts. Uh, <laughs> who knows? The, well, who knows? I was right. able to get a long-term okay. lease, so whatever happens around me, that's fine. Sure. Um, but I fell in love with this space and convinced the landlord to to let me take it. He wasn't really ready to start renting it, but the timing wound up working out nicely. Amazing. Yeah. That's great. You know, I, I would think even... So there's the real estate question, just because um, New York City isn't getting any bigger land mass-wise. I would even imagine there are other challenges, uh, such as access to adequate water and drainage and all those sorts of things. How do you kind of overcome the the kind of municipal aspect of running a distillery in an urban area? <laughs> uh, you say that magic word for me, drainage. Drainage, yeah. Um, we installed floor drains here, and every time it rains hard, you know, I just... We stare at the drains, waiting for them to back up because they inevitably do. Yeah. But you know, it takes take just a mop and and, and some time and okay. patience. <laughs> like all distilling, just time and patience. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's not. You know, I think that a lot of logistics are challenging for us because, as you can see, we're on Meadow Street here, mm-hmm. which is pretty industrial, but there's. There are cars parked everywhere and it's basically a one lane street. So when you're trying to ship product out of here or receive ingredients in, it's kind of a challenge to get tractor trailers down the blocks. Uh, A good tip is never park your car on any of the corners around here because there are trailers trying to make the turns around the corners and I've watched them clip whole cars, basically. That explains why I was able to find a parking spot on a corner. (laughs) Excuse me, I got to go for a second. (laughs) Just listen for the sound of a car. (laughs) Good tip. Thank you for that. So it's okay. You get your space. You kind of, you you install your floor drains. You get your gas line in, your new boiler, Mm -hmm. all that uh, uh, you fire up your still, you start making your product. Since you've uh, gone live in 2012, what's been the most satisfying part of owning a distillery then? Mm, you know, it's exactly the opposite of what I was doing before this. You know, I was buying and selling stocks and making investments and making a lot of money, but it didn't feel like I was doing anything. You know, it didn't feel tangible. This is the exact opposite of that. I'm literally making something with my hands from start to finish down to bottling it, putting the cork in, wrapping the label around the bottle, putting it in the box, and then going and selling it. So enjoying drinks with it at made at bars and restaurants and chatting with people about it and meeting people in liquor stores. And that in itself is extremely rewarding to kind of have random people that you've never met before tweet at you or, you know, (laughs) make buy a bottle of Oni's in a store or go home and make a cocktail with it and come up with their own creation, take a picture of it and then tweet it at you. Mm-hmm. Um, that just doesn't get old. It still doesn't get old for me to see it on a... St- it, I, I mean, it should never get old. Right. And it's only the really the beginning, hopefully, for what I have envisioned for the company. Right, because here we are in 20... It's, it's where are we, in October 2014, so you've been open for about two years now. So. Yeah, and it started out really, really small. I mean, I was selling it out of the trunk of my car wow. running around the city, so there's already been so many you know, so much growth since then. And it's, I just think getting the feedback or even last night I was at one of our partner bars that has been a supporter since day one, one of their anniversary parties. And I met a bartender that I've never met before. And he was from another bar and he knew exactly what Oni's was (laughs) and that he drinks it and this is what he does with it. And, you know, that's so cool. So cool. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. 
So it sounds like you do most of the, from the sounds of it, you do it all, right? But you have a team around you to kind of help with some of this. Yeah. Um, what's kind of your team like? How did you get over things like the permitting requirements? Did you use consultants to do that, to get through TTB? Or was it all very much just uh, perseverance and... It was perseverance. It's It was a lot of hard work in the beginning. I almost forget, you know, sometimes I look back on all that paperwork sure. and the buildings department and I was so almost blind ambition or drive or I had blinders on and was just too excited to keep, you know, going and I couldn't wait to have this up and running. And of course I had architects and a contractor and a lawyer to kind of, I guess, quote unquote consult, but you have to manage them too. And then for the first year and a half, I was doing everything on my own here from distilling to packaging to selling to logistics delivery. And um, I'm happy and proud to say that as of April of this year, I've hired my first two employees, one young woman who is awesome and she, or both of them are awesome. One is more sales and marketing oriented, uh, sort of brand ambassador. And the other young woman is a distiller and I kind of float between two roles. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. And we're moving into new markets now. So, a lot of strategic thinking and back office paperwork that I have to do <laughs> for that. <laughs> but at least you don't have to stare at the still all day long and you can actually have time to go in and do that. Back yeah. Office I miss okay. that, though. <laughs> Dude, I, yeah. You know, every now and again, I clear a full day while I, where I'm by myself here mm-hmm. and I'll just spend time in the back. And it's. Not many people get into distilling to do paperwork. Exactly. Yeah. It's very therapeutic to have those days. So what is kind of your marketing strategy then? How do you, how are you getting the, now, now that you're not just selling it out of the trunk of your car, walking into bars and liquor stores, how do you kind of get the word out about I mean, Oni's, Oni's? I think it's, yeah, I think it's still about, it's not literally coming out of the trunk of my car, mm-hmm. but I think myself and I, as I said to you, one of my newer employees, we spend a lot of time in the trade. We spend a lot of time hanging out with bartenders you know, everyone will say, quote unquote, this is a relationship business. Every business is a relationship business, but it's really for us at this stage, it's a hand sell still. And it's telling the story and talking about the liquid and, you know, the name Onis and all of those things that everything is done from start to finish here. And we invite, one of the most powerful things is, is inviting people to the distillery to see how everything is done. We're pretty transparent about our process and we're proud of the space here and a couple of blocks from a subway station. So I think all of those factors start building on itself and we're now distributed in New York through the largest distributor oh, wow. um, in the state. And so it's working alongside them and their sales force and their management and getting the their sales force to understand the story and get their attention because they sell a lot of different products and a lot of bigger products. You can't offer the top salesman a trip to Mexico or anything. <laughs> so you maybe have one to, day. Maybe one day. Yeah. We, so, can, so. we always joke. We can invite them to the distillery. Yeah. <laughs> hey guys, ever wonder yeah. how it's made? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. A lot of the um, bigger suppliers will take the, especially rum companies. You mm-hmm. know, go to the Caribbean. Let's go to Puerto like, Rico. Or you, yeah. can, you can come to Bushwick. <laughs> Go to Roberta's, we'll get an amazing pizza. Exactly, yeah, no, exactly. Bushwick has a lot of things going for it. it. Does. Maybe not it a beach, d- but... It does. Uh, all the street art, <laughs> you know? Up. That's right. <laughs> well, let's kind of talk about that story then. Um, where did the name, the Noble Experiment, and the name for your rum Onis come from? Uh, yes. Interesting names. Yeah, so I probably alluded to already in speaking here that I am really enthralled with the history of booze in this country and as a proud New Yorker uh, in the city specifically. And so when I was thinking about 
this business and this kind of silly dream that I had, I was reading about how really the last time we had homegrown distilling in New York City was during the Prohibition era. So albeit illicit, there were thousands of stills in people's homes and businesses. And I kind of looked to that era for inspiration. So Mm -hmm. actually the government's nickname for prohibition was the Noble Experiment. Oh, It was a way they got people on board with the legislation to join in this which we are now happy was a failed experiment. Okay. <laughs> um, Noble it, though it may have been. No, <laughs> exactly. And it's called kind of a double entendre for my personal experiment, my own noble experiment. And then Oni also comes out of that era. So the house I grew up in, Rockway, it's on the beach, Rockway Beach in Queens, houses a speakeasy that was active during oh. Prohibition. So that also served as inspiration. And Oni was a gangster out of that era. So his real, Oni was his nickname. His uh, real name was Owen Madden. He grew up in Hell's Kitchen, was a leader of the Gopher Gang at the turn of the century, a Westie. Okay. And when Prohibition was enacted, he capitalized on the legislation by operating speakeasies. So he operated some of the most well-known speakeasies and the Cotton Club, for instance, was a bootlegger. And then most endearing to me, he was a rum runner. And so he actually had an estate in Rockaway, which is on the beach, and he would smuggle rum in from the Caribbean. Uh, Rum running basically was the ships would come up full of rum from the Caribbean, drop anchor at Rum Row, which is 12 (laughs) miles offshore in international waters, so they couldn't get in trouble. And then the gangsters would take their ships or they would hire fishermen to take ships out to Rum Row, fill them up with rum and smuggle them back into shore. And it was one of the times in the history of the U.S. where rum had a real resurgence in popularity. One of the first times since the colonial era. And uh, so it pays homage to New York, gangsters, rum, entrepreneurs. That's all awesome. Yeah. Well, so the, all that history kind of seems to come through in, in your bottle design and your label design. Um, how did you come up with that? What was kind of your creative process for that? Ah, it's a... Uh, I worked with a very good friend of mine who's a freelance graphic designer. His company's All Good NYC. And uh, we kind of spent a lot of time in liquor stores. So we had this vision and and we- Before starting the distillery or? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We looked at every bottle on the shelf and um, it was a six month process of back and forth on what we wanted to do. And then we worked with our bottle manufacturer to come up with the shape and went for the custom mold, which was- uh, a big investment. That's a, <laughs> that's a bold thing to do uh, <laughs> yeah. when you're first getting your product uh, yeah. started even. Yeah. I just know that from my old life, I knew that I wanted a unique bottle. Mm-hmm. And that really doesn't exist unless you want the most generic stock bottle. Sure. So, so this kind of helps it really stand out on the shelf then when people go in. And, exactly. Yeah. And we own this mold now. It's trademarked. and Very cool. You know, all those good things. Well, and... What kind of closure do you use in there? Um, uh, the, the, uh, the cork. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, a, it's a synthetic cork, mm-hmm. so it's pretty standard cork right now. Maybe one day we'll upgrade. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, it looks really great yeah, right now. thanks. So when you're developing your mash bill or when you're developing your, um, your recipe, what was kind of that process like? Who, did you have a tasting panel? Did you try a bunch of different kinds? Um, so I, tried, I drank a lot was? of rum before okay. I started this <laughs> yeah. distillery. Um, Thank God you like what you made. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And I kind of tasted a lot of rums and sort of tried to figure out or asked the distillers directly or found out through my own research on different techniques of certain how certain rums were made and sort of decided what I liked and didn't like and had a sort of preconceived notion about what I wanted to make when I was 
ready to start distilling here. I love agricole styles and I wanted to kind of play on that technique without using juice. So a lot of my like fermentation philosophy is similar to an agricole or even a whiskey. And basically I wanted to use a high sugar content molasses because I believe that it has a lot of similarities to a juice. I basically started out saying I want to make a rum that doesn't need any flavorings, colorings, preservatives, or a barrel to give it character. So I want to use the best ingredients, which are only three. We only use three ingredients oh, okay. here. Is it my, What's your secret recipe? If you yeah, don't mind, yeah, it's filtered New York tap water. Okay. Uh, again, um, <laughs> pizza makers swear by it. Bagel makers swear it, by exactly. it. Exactly. Uh, it, it seemingly makes a pretty good rum. The sugarcane molasses that I discussed before and a proprietary yeast. And basically we mash those, well, we mash the water and the molasses. And then we do a five-day, which is considered pretty long for a rum, uh, five-day temperature-controlled cold fermentation. And basically what we're trying to achieve in that process is a high ester content. So esters add a lot of aroma and flavor and character to a spirit. So we're basically hoping the yeast eat up all the sugars in that liquid, create alcohol, and then basically once the alcohol content of the liquid gets pretty high, those yeasts start producing acids as a defense mechanism against alcohol poisoning. Mm -hmm. We then want those acids to combine back with the alcohols made in the first step to form esters. And those are kind of short chain esters and a lot of fruitiness, banana notes, some smokiness from that and also the way we distill it. So basically, we then want to take that fermented liquid and distill it in a way that showcases the flavor we produce during fermentation. So yeah, how do you protect those very sensitive short-chain esters? How yeah, do you so them? we basically perform a low rectification distillation. So we have a, a pot column hybrid still here and we distill that fermented liquid. It comes off the still at about 164 proof, which is really low for a white rum, especially a, a molasses-based white rum. Most of those rums you see on the shelf have produced, been uh, distilled similarly to a vodka. So, you know, at 190 proof, um, really neutral spirits, uh, cane neutral spirits, if you've ever heard that term. So we think at 164 proof, it's adequately showcasing the flavors we've created during fermentation. And I think that sort of philosophy gets lost in a lot of distilling because people either distill their spirits to such a neutral level that it doesn't really matter the flavors you've created during fermentation or they add things back. Or in the case of aged spirits, they the distillate goes into a barrel and it arguably gets 80 to 90 percent of its flavor and character from what happens in the barrel. So... So you really can't mess up. You don't have a fail safe when it exactly, comes to this. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so is the cost of that then time, five-day fermentation, does your distillation take an extra long time to do because you are bringing it off at such a low percentage? Mm -hmm. um, and we actually also do pretty like slow boil fermentation. So our fermentations are extra long. You know, they can go anywhere from seven to 10 hours. So speaking about your still then, where did you get that beautiful still? How did you find it? What was kind of your process in looking for it? Yeah, uh, so when I was first thinking about starting this business, mm -hmm. I was kind of doing research to figure out how I could learn how to distill or if I could consult with anyone or if maybe there was a potential for me to hire someone to help me distill. And it turns out that's a pretty difficult task <laughs> in the U.S. because this industry has been pretty much dead for so long that there's no formal degrees. And obviously the Kentucky whiskey distilleries, the kind of distillers that work there never leave because it's a really 
admirable, awesome job. And so I think what a lot of, because it is such a growing industry, I think a lot of the small distillers or some of the small distillers around the country have sort of started these three to five to seven day crash courses and how to start a distillery or how to distill and uh, came across one in, in Chicago, Colval uh, Distillery. And so I was still working at the hedge fund. I said, I can take a Monday off. I'm going to go there for three days, went out to Chicago and came away from those three days saying like, eh, I think I can pull this off. But it turns out those guys uh, that I started a relationship with at Koval are the reps to a great manufacturer of stills in Germany called Koth. And I wound up purchasing my still after obviously doing some research with other manufacturers. I knew that I wanted a hybrid still. And at the time, the really those the best ones were being made by the German manufacturers. Now a lot of the other manufacturers around the world are making those types of stills because the craft distiller is kind of calling for them. Bitcoat has been around for so long and Germany did not ever have to really go through the prohibition period or anything. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, so they've have such a long history. From, of- from what I've from what I've gathered, they, you know, there are thousands, you know, the farm distiller, the sort of artisanal, whatever buzzword you want to use for it, is very prevalent in Germany and Austria. Kind of everyone has a still on their farm. So then how did you find your molasses uh, supplier then? Because um, that's a very unique thing, I'm sure, because there's not much rum being made here in the United States. So it's not like there's people banging down your door to sell you molasses to turn into rum. How did you go out and find them? Yeah, so I knew that I wanted to be 100% U.S. made product. And so I just did some research and found some uh, brokers of independent sugarcane farmers in the U.S. And we kind of started with some samples. So when I first started distilling here, we started with three types of molasses and three types of yeast. And all of those molasses were basically the variant, the, you know, the variable factor was the sugar content. Okay. So it, there was a clear winner. Gotcha. So I guess kind of looking back now, so you have a product on the shelf and you're finally able to expand your team and maybe you can give a brief second uh, to reflect kind of on where you are right now, given the journey you've been on in just two years. What do you wish you knew now that you didn't know then? What, what could you tell Bridget two years ago? <laughs> By the way, don't forget to do don't this. Don't let your, yeah. you know, I think that there are certain things you can do better than others, but you're not all of a sudden going to be doing it in half as much time for as half as much money. So I really do think, and a lot of people told me this, getting into this business, you know, it takes three times as long as you think and it costs twice as much. And I really do think like in my experience, that has been a good factor. And I, and I think that's a saying for a reason. I think that it takes a really long time to build a brand and get the word out. And when you look at the major spirits brands that we all see on the shelves every day, those have been around for 50, 100 years, and they have a lot of strength behind them because of all of that time. So I think that patience is not my virtue, and I've learned how to be patient over the past. Oh, interesting. Or I try to tell myself to be patient for the last couple of years. (laughs) Has owning your own distillery kind of changed how you go to restaurants, go to bars now? Has that experience kind of shifted? Now that you're on this side, now you're on the production side of uh, it does of the hospitality <laughs> industry, so to speak. Uh, yeah, how has that kind of changed your relationship to restaurants and bars? I think it's overall changed for the better. It's really cool to be in an industry that I like to enjoy as a enthusiast before. I think that 
generally people who work in hospitality are awesome and nice and kind and friendly. And so getting to visit them at their workplace is great. I think that it becomes challenging for me as someone at this point with limited resources to go any go out anywhere that doesn't carry onis or that I don't want them to try to carry onis. Yeah, so yeah. it's hard to, I guess, escaping sort of being able to go out, but, but also trying to go out and not do business is a bit mm-hmm. of a challenge for me. Okay. But there could be worse things, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. I look forward, I go out a lot now. So when I was working at the hedge fund, I went out maybe on weekends. Now it's, I go out all the time. So I look forward to kind of ordering a pizza and watching TV okay. once a week <laughs> type of thing. Yeah, so now your, your relaxing time is actually spent in instead of going out exactly. because work is going out. Exactly, yeah. exactly. My final question for you today, people come in, they go to a liquor store, they buy a bottle of Oni's. How do you recommend they enjoy it? What's one recipe that they should think about trying with your rum or... How would you recommend Mm. someone appreciate it? So I think that if you're going to buy a bottle in a liquor store and go home with it, I think that first of all, you should taste it neat. And then I think you should add an ice cube and taste it a little bit colder uh, to see the change in um, flavor from, you know, on its own to with an ice cube. And then of course, my favorite recipe to tell people, especially at home, because it's really easy to do at home, is a classic daiquiri. I think that's something that's been kind of lost in translation over the years with blenders and boxes of high fructose corn syrup mixes. Yeah. Where a classic daiquiri is the holy trinity, rum, lime, and sugar. <laughs> That's so, it, okay. Um, you know, my, my personal favorite is two ounces of Oni's, a three quarters of an ounce of fresh squeezed lime juice, and a half an ounce of simple syrup with a 50-50 ratio of water uh, to sugar in the simple syrup. Okay. But you can also play around to your own taste. Every bartender has their own favorite ratio. So mm-hmm. some like, you know, two ounces, a half an ounce, a half an ounce, and things like that. So I encourage you to try that on your own. Okay. Well, is it noon yet? Because I think I know what I'm going to run into. It is noon. Look at that on a Friday. All right. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, Bridget, thank you so much for giving me your time today and speaking with me today oh, about the Noble Experiment. No, where can people find pleasure. you? Where Where are you at? Cool. Right? So uh, we are available in a bunch of stores in New York. Mm-hmm. If you go to onis.com, uh, you can find a store locator and find the store closest to you. And how do you spell Onis just so? Sure. It's O-W-N-E-Y-S.com. Com. All right. Yeah. Hey, well, thank you, Bridget. Oh, thank you very much.